Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. I'll be reading from the ESV Bible. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you that you're the sovereign God that sits above the nations. Our hearts are heavy, as was stated earlier, as Adonai shares and it's not just there, it's, it's around the globe. And the wars rage even within our homes and within our own souls. It's been a heavy week. We, we think of Karen Beisinger and the loss of her mom this week for Sherry Keller's uh, husband, Bob, and his memorial service this past week. For Susan Pfeiffer's and her mother who is very ill with cardiac arrest and Andrea Gillen Larry Pribble and others in our congregation who are struggling. Father, there's much that is distracting, even the lack of sleep last night from the sirens. Father, help us to, to zone in on what you have for us, to hone in on the text, to, to, to clear the cobwebs and allow you to speak. We thank you for your word. And this is a familiar text and it's often easy just to, to glance through the text and move on to the next passage. Open our eyes to the truths that you would have. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 7. Uh, that has been our journey uh, for some time now, moving through the gospel of Luke. And so if you want to follow along, it's Luke 22, verse 7. Whether it's a flag at half-mask or a poppy pinned to the collar, or to the lapel, I should say, of a coat, or a yellow flag wrapped around a tree, symbols carry great meaning. In fact, they evoke a flood of emotions. 
Symbolism is not something that's foreign to scriptures. In fact, in this scene, Jesus and his disciples will observe a couple of symbols. In fact, Jesus is going to alter the meaning of those symbols, as we will see. It's a very important dinner because that evening, early in the morning, he will be arrested. And by the next day, he'll be crucified. John calls this time, and he records it in chapters 13 through 17 of his gospel, the farewell discourse. It's the last words that Jesus has for his followers, his disciples in particular, here in this upper room. Let's look at verse 7. It said, Then the day for the feast of the unleavened bread, which is, the, it was interchangeable with the Passover in the first century. It was a series of events that, that carried over for a week. Passover is significant. It's still significant to, to Jews today. Even if they're hardly observant, they'll probably still observe the Passover. Why? Well, it was an annual Jewish festival that reflects God's deliverance of the Israelites during the time of the Exodus. It was their salvation through their bondage under the Egyptians. And it was during this time, if you recall, in the 10th plague, God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn in every home that does not have the Passover lamb, the angel of death passing over, because there was blood of the lamb over the lentil and on the sides of the door, Exodus 12. And so that which had the blood over it, the, the angel would pass over. Those that didn't, the firstborn was eliminated. And God said in Exodus 12, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? What do you mean by the Passover? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared your homes. And it says the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. It was an annual reminder, just as in November in UK, you'll see those red poppies on the lapels. It's a reminder of, of what occurred. They're not to forget. All four Gospels will refer to the upper room. Luke, however, gives us, ironically in some ways, since he's a Gentile writing to Gentiles, will spend the most time detailing this event. So watch this as we move along. As we do, many scholars go, oh, we've got a problem here. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us that the dinner is the, the Passover meal. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. Verse 8, it is to prepare for the Passover that we are to eat. Yet in John's gospel, John 18 and 19, we're told that the Passover occurs after the hearings and after the crucifixion. John mentions in John 18 that the religious rulers would not enter Pilate's house so as not to be defied for the Passover. And you go, oh, what's going on here? And scholars might propose a, there were two different calendars, and that is true. Some argue, well, there's a, a strict Jewish observance on this date, the non-strict observance this date. However, I think what's going on here is that John's reference that is being associated with the Passover week itself. Uh, and they are preparing for the Sabbath Passover, which is even more significant. But the meal specifically during this time frame is located here in this evening in which Jesus will be betrayed. 
Well, let's go to the text. Let's see what happens in verse 8. Jesus sends, and look who he sends, Peter and John. Peter's no surprise. He's the ringleader, right? He's the guy that's got the foot and mouth disease. He uh, often speaks when he shouldn't speak, does what he shouldn't do. But he's in charge. And John, you kind of wonder, well, you know, he, he was involved at the transfiguration along with Peter. They'll be the two that go to the tomb. But John also has connections in the wealthy part of the city where you're going to need a place. We'll talk about that in a minute. We know in John's gospel, we're told that the high priestly family knew John's family. They knew Zebedee and company. It may be that they furnished fish. I don't know. Who knows? But they're known. And so both play a key role. And the Lord tells them several things. Notice what he says here. First of all, you need to secure a room. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like it's too hard, but here's the, the catch. <laughs> the Passover meal has to be observed within the city. And a city that is approximately, scholars say anywhere between 50 to 70,000 will triple in size, at least double, maybe triple in size during the Passover. How are you going to accommodate observing of the meal within the city walls? Now, in the first century, they said you may observe it outside of the city walls, but you cannot go too far. It must be within greater Jerusalem. In other words, finding this type of real estate that allows you to have a dinner is like finding land in Westfield. You can forget it, right? Or, or, or booking a restaurant on Sunday morning for Mother's Day. You're, you're, it's too late. You've you got to be kidding. And to me, this is part of the miracle. Some scholars will dismiss it and say, well, Jesus already had prearranged this. I don't think so. Uh, it's just a sign of God's uh, providence in this whole scene. And that's one of the things you want to watch as we look at this text. Jesus is in complete control. We'll see this next week at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in complete control. He knew they were going to come arrest him that night. He could have easily went off on the other side of the ridge into the wilderness and escaped. They would have never caught him. But he said, I've come to lay down my life for my sheep. Right? And so in verses 10 through 13, we're told, he said to them, listen, what you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water. This is a servant. Uh, it could have been men or women who carried the jars of water. What we know is not the owner because verse 11 tells us there's an owner. So you see, first you enter the city. You're going to look for a guy carrying a pot of water. Right? You're going to follow him to the house that he enters Tell the owner the following, and then in verse 12, you're going to make preparations. So there's five things that Peter and John are going to have to do in this process. They're not, it's not foreign to them. They understand this. But again, we're, we're looking for a room that can accommodate. And I love the text. The owner immediately says, sure, no problem. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have said, uh, who is it that's asking? Where's the down payment? Notice what the text says in verse 11. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover? Not only does he want a room, he wants the best room in the house. You, you need to accommodate this. And I love this. It says, then he will show you a large, don't miss this, furnished room. It's already been taken care of. When you observe the Passover, it was to be around a U-shaped table. Forget Da Vinci. Is it Da Vinci, the upper, uh, yeah, the Last Supper? Uh, mm -mm. They're not sitting on a, a square, ta long, rectangular table. It's U-shaped. Jesus will sit, the host sits in the center, 
The person on the left in the first century was the seat of honor uh, because your left side's the most vulnerable. I can guard my right. I can't guard the left. And Jesus said, who I dip the bread with is the one who's going to betray me. Remember that? Who's he leaning against? He's leaning against Judas. Judas Iscariot had the, the seat of prominence. Interesting. Well, he was the trusted treasurer. And it's not surprising when he left the room. I mean, I would have thought, didn't you know he was a traitor? He just left. No, because it was common in a Passover meal to take up a collection and give it to the poor during the, the festival, during the meal. But John is on his right side, because remember Peter says, uh, ask Jesus who it is. Is it I, or what's going on? And so you get this idea. This, so you've got to have a room large enough for a U-shaped table for at least 12. A Passover meal required at least 10 individuals in order to have the meal. And so we have a large room. It's the best room. Imagine the blessing that comes to the owner because he allowed Jesus to use the room that night. The Passover lamb was not only on the table, but the lamb was reclining in his guest room. The lyrics to the hymn, Trust and Obey, I love. It states, then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. What bragging rights that owner had to say, yeah, it was my house that was used. Church tradition tells us that John Mark, uh, remember the sidekick for Paul in the first missionary journey in Barnabas? John Mark, it was his mother, Mary, whose house they utilized. It's the same house, scholars will argue, when Jesus resurrects and he appears to them in that room, it's this same house. But it's fully furnished, God's provision. So they need to secure a room. They're going to need to obtain a lamb that is slain. The Passover lambs were slain from 2.30 to 5.30 at the temple courts. So you got to get to the temple and get a lamb. Little Bobo, right? We got to have that. I know it's awful, but it is what it is, right? Uh, no such thing as vegetarian at this time. Uh, so you got the lamb. You will eat dinner by 6 o'clock. That's when Passover was to be reserved, uh, observed. Not late at night, but at 6. I know. And then they had to pitch, uh, purchase bitter herbs, which indicates the bitterness of having dwelt in the land of Egypt as slaves and unleavened bread because they didn't have time. It's, it's symbolic. They didn't have time to bake bread and let it rise, right? So all of these are symbols that are vital to the Passover meal. If you've been to a Seder, you understand that. Uh, I was talking to John Lieberman this week with Chosen People Ministries, one of our own members here, and he does a fine job with the Seder meal of experiencing these elements and so, and then you have the lamb, which is either to be consumed in its entirety for the dinner, or any leftovers are to be burnt up. So here we have it. They've made preparation in verse 13. So they went and found things just as he had told them. That is the same line used when Jesus said, find a colt for me to enter the city for the triumphal entry. The text tells us the same line. They found it just as he had told them. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. This is Hoffaditz's hypothesis. But here's what I think is happening. That line's used at the beginning of the Passion Week as we enter this final week, and it's now issued again right before Jesus is to be arrested. I believe the disciples needed to be reminded that in light of the incredible adversity they are about to transpire, that whatever Jesus states, 
it will come to pass. Perhaps that's what you need to be reminded of today. Jesus stated, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said he's coming again. I am, he states, the one who rules above all. And it's just as he told them. 2 Samuel 22, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So powerful is that text, it's repeated in Psalm 18. And Proverbs 30 has a variation. It states, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Interestingly, of all the books of the Bible, it occurs five times in the book of Revelation. God's word is true. I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all that's unleashed in the book of Revelation, it's a great reminder to know God's word is true. And it states here, I love it. It's just a line. And he found it just as they told him. But oh, the value of that. Edward Reynolds states, assurance will assist us in all duties. It will arm us against all temptations. It will answer all objections. It will sustain us in all conditions. Speaking with someone this week and they said, I'm really struggling with God as I watch what's happening in Ukraine. And the same lady was six years old when Munich was bombed at the end of World War II. She was under rubble for three days. She said, I, 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 this, is, this is hard, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. But we trust God's word. We trust our God. He knows all things. And Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? But one thing for certain, he has entered our pain and suffering. He knows. He's not foreign to this world. He's not some God that sits, uh, you know, we, out there and hasn't related. We have a sympathetic high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. And so when the difficulties of life come, insecurities rear its ugly head, or disappointments overwhelm us, rest in knowing that God's word is true, and it will come to pass. Well, let's go back to the text. So they've prepared the Passover. Good job, Peter and John. Uh, the hostess with the mostess, right? They got this all arranged. It says, when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table. Again, he's sitting in a seat uh, where the host would sit, which is in the center. Again, it's also indicating that he is in charge. And it says, his apostles joined him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired. <laughs> I love it. It's not, you'll not find that anywhere else in the New Testament. I long with a great longing the, the, just the verb is used of the poor man with Lazarus who, who says he longed to have a breadcrumb from Lazarus' table used earlier in Luke 16. But here it's longing with great longing. I have, I have desired this, the Lord says. Notice, to eat this Passover with you and watch the next phrase before I suffer. Oh, the flood of emotions. Jesus must have been experiencing. The disciples, I mean, uh, they're clueless. What, what? What's going on? What are you talking about? I mean, they're still trying to figure out why Jesus washed their feet. You know, all of this. 
Jesus is fully aware of what is about to transpire. Again, he states, before I suffer, he knows that within 20, less than 24 hours, he will experience the most horrific death designed by human beings, the Roman crucifixion. And so in this, he says, I long to have this final meal with you. And meals throughout Old and New Testament are so significant. If you want to study, just, just look at all the various times meals are offered in Scripture, especially in Luke's Gospel. I remember I had the opportunity to teach a group of believers in Moldova New Testament for a week. We met eight hours a day with coats on. It was freezing in the middle of winter. They didn't have heat in the building. But we had a final meal at the very end to say goodbye. That was difficult. I'd grown to love those people. And you knew that most likely I wouldn't see them again this side of eternity. Jesus looking at this, these men he's poured his life into for over three years. He says, I've longed to have this meal with you. John's gospel, again, as we mentioned, in 13 through 17 of his gospel, as he looks at this upper room, we see a message. The, the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, condense it. But John gives us a little more glimpse into what transpired that night. And there's a long discourse. There's a long sermon that is recorded in those five chapters, four chapters. It's a message undergirded by love and one of unity. John 13 states, it expresses the emotion of the moment by Jesus saying, I will love you to the end. And, and so here you see this. It says, for I tell you, I will not eat it, verse 16, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. This meal is the last Passover meal we're going to have until the end. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a future to all this. Yeah, he's looking to the past with the Passover and God's deliverance in, in, in Egypt, but he's looking to another deliverance and, and the ultimate full fruition, which will be at the end. Jesus' refusal, one commentator states, to eat such a festal meal until the consummation signals a new stage in God's plan. There will be a time of fulfillment. And, and you see it, it, the kingdom of God is mentioned twice. Look at verse 8. I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so we see it twice. Now look back at the text here because this is significant. It says in verse 17, then he took a cup. But in verse 20, he takes a cup. And you're going, what cup is which? And what's going on here? The Passover meal, the Seder, had a very structured, uh, I want to say menu, but order to the observance. The first cup that is given at the meal is one of kind of a blessing on what we're about to take, partake of. It's the blessing on the meal. It's a blessing on the evening. The second comes after the explanation. So first cup, second cup, in between, someone has given us a discourse on the Exodus. Again, reminding us of what God has done. The second cup is to say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. And this is often when they'll sing one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113, 114, 115, right in there. They'll sing one of those songs at this time frame. Then they'll have the meal. This is your Bobo, right? And all that comes with it. And then there's that third cup, which is to wash it down and, and to reflect. And then the fourth cup, there's a fourth one, you got it, which often concludes the entire evening, though uh, some say in the first century there wasn't 
four cups as part of the Seder. It was just the three. So the question is in verse 17, which cup is he taking? Because I, I think there's some significance here. Bear with me. Some would argue that this is the third cup, but that doesn't make sense because in verse 20, it's clearly the third cup and they are different. So what's going on here? I think what you have in verse 17 is the first, which is a call for blessing about what we're going to, to take, what we're going to do. The gratitude that is given. Notice it says, he takes the cup and after giving thanks, this is where we get the idea, uh, well, it's the Greek rendering is Eucharist. So this is where we get that term. He says, take this and divide it among yourselves. So this is the beginning of, and it's a common cup that's passed. We're going to divide it, uh, indicating this is the beginning of the blessing that comes. Dividing among yourselves speaks of unity, doesn't it? This is the problem in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul talks about the communion, he goes, there's division among you, and that brings cursing upon the uh, upper mill, the, the, last, the supper. You can't do that. This is, this is a time of unity. It's a time of us coming together. And clearly, if Christ is the head of the body and we are the members, then it's our responsibility to behave accordingly and come together. You cannot, I would argue, take of communion. Well, Paul argues it, so it's in the Bible. Paul argues that you cannot take of communion if you're harboring ill will towards a brother or sister in Christ. You can't do it. Because this is, we're coming together as one around Christ. Verse 18, for I tell you, Jesus says, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, this is the one last celebration we will have, Jesus says, as we give gratitude, as we have fellowship, because we are looking to the end when the kingdom of God will come. Notice the surety that Jesus has. I hope it transpires. No. <laughs> this is how it's going to be, the Lord states. He is in charge. And by the way, that gives me great hope. This isn't, I hope Purdue wins the next game. Mm-mm. Sorry, UIU fans, right? We, we, no, 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 no. This is a guarantee. Why? Because the Lord stated it. Just as he said, the scriptures teach that he would come the first time, he's coming again. And we see this in the text. We get to the last few verses, and it's here where Jesus will take the symbols of the Passover, that bread and the wine, and he's going to give it new meaning. He's going to reassign it. And in so doing, again, he brings that promise of fulfillment, but it shows his authority. And I would argue it shows Jesus' self-understanding. He knows exactly what is going to transpire. Verse 19, he took the bread. It's a text we're so familiar with. He broke it. He gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. The bread symbolizes the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh to redeem the world. It's the gateway to life. And he says it's offered for them. Notice this, it's been given for you. It's sacrificial. It's a substitutionary notion here that he is taking our place. He's providing that which was not earned, but that which is gifted to us. And he says 
do this, notice this in verse 19, in remembrance of me. Luke is the only gospel writer that highlights this from the upper room. It's a memorial meal, not, not a re-sacrifice every time we take it. It recalls to mind what Jesus did. It's the same with how the Passover functioned in the past of recalling what God did for those that were in bondage in Egypt. This meal recalls what God did for us in releasing us from the bondage to sin. And it calls to mind again what Jesus did and declares identification with the act as we speak to a new event, a new exodus. Oh, there's similarities between the old Passover and what Jesus is stating here. Both involved a sacrificial death, didn't they? The Passover lamb, the lamb of God. Ironically, you had to kill a bobo every year. This is once for all. Hebrews talks about that. Second similarity is a reminder of God's deliverance out of Egypt, out of the bondage of sin. And yet, many firstborn were killed because the blood wasn't over the doorpost. There's only one firstborn killed here, and that's Christ. Secondly, many lambs, again, were killed, and as we stated, only one lamb here for deliverance. And so Jesus said, my body is going to be broken, and oh, is it, as we move through his arrest, and as we move through the crucifixion, we will look at this at great detail, especially on Good Friday service. This is my body, he says, it's been given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, gave thanks, said it's been given to you, right? And after they had eaten or drank it, saying the cup is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in my blood. This, I believe, is the third cup. It celebrates the sacrifice that has been given. And it tells us that even this, the idea of being poured out is the idea that it's a sacrifice. Matthew adds for the forgiveness of sins, which is very interesting because we have, it's been given for you in verse 19, and now the forgiveness of sins, what Matthew highlights, it, it, it's recalling Isaiah 53, what we call the suffering servant. Jesus takes that role. Let me read to you just a little portion of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is Isaiah. I'm not reading a New Testament writing. I'm reading a Jewish writing 700 and some years before Christ. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the sinners. That's our Savior. And so beautifully depicted in this mill, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is going to carry your sin. I'm the one who's going to pay what you should have paid. A friend of mine grew up in a Jewish home and he shared Christ many times with his parents and they didn't want to hear any more. He read this text, Isaiah 53. His father literally put his hand, his fist through the wall and said, stop reading to me Christian literature. And my friend said, this is from the book of Hebrews. It's from the Jewish writings. 
It's fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus stating, my blood is the new covenant. It's personalized. Jesus is taking the initiative and providing salvation for us. Christ redeemed us, Paul states, from the curse of the law because he bore the curse of God, which we deserved. In other words... Jesus takes the images, the symbols of the Passover meal, applies it here to the bread and the cup of wine, and he says, listen, Christ is central. Or Jesus is saying, I am central. It's my death. It's the forgiveness of sins that comes from that. And now it gives you a gateway to new life. A new deliverance. A new exodus. So what do we do with this? There are several points there in your notes. Let me highlight these for you. First of all, the elements of the bread and wine serve as tangible ways to remember and stir our, stir our minds and hearts. And you think about it, whether it's a teddy bear, a piece of jewelry, a picture hanging on your wall, or perhaps a particular knickknack, there are objects which are laced with memories. According to the most recent psychological research, studies are showing that the part of the brain that stores and recalls memories is also that which integrates the sensations, the smell, the taste. And there's often, if you're walking down the street or you're, in, you're out outside and you smell something, it can trigger a memory, doesn't it? I've got a pen sitting on my desk that two very dear friends gave to me years ago. Every time I pick up that pen, I think about the crazy times we had in college their, their friendship, the smell of the musty dorm comes waffling back through my office and the laughters and the crazy times, all of that that comes together, it, it carries memory. And Jesus is saying, this bread and this wine, they're to, they're to conjure up very clear images. Oh, we weren't there at Golgotha. We didn't see the horror but we can imagine it in God's great object lesson. Sam Storm states, the bread and the wine exist not simply to stir cognitive remembrance, but to light a fire of unquenchable longing for the Savior whose body and blood they symbolize. These visible signs are also a means of grace by which the Spirit excites and intensifies our thirst for what Jesus alone can offer. He's not saying they save us. It's not it. But it draws us to him. So come to the this time to hunger and feast after the Son of God. So there are tangible pieces which help us to recall. Secondly, Jesus is the focus of our remembrance, his sacrifice, his love, and his grace. Think about it. It was the Lord who initiated the dinner. It was the Lord who broke the bread. It was the Lord who took the cup. And it was the Lord who willingly gave his life. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And Hebrew 9 says, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that had come, though through greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and bobos, right? But by his own blood thus securing e eternal redemption. And so, when we look at the bread and the wine, we, we, we better see Christ. Third, by partaking in communion, we indicate we have, by faith, confessed our sins 
and have been justified by his righteousness, a work completed by Christ on the cross. Ephesians 1, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There it is again. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Again, who's known the mind of the Lord? How did, did I do something to earn that? No way. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. And so he states, Paul writes in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, here's the reason, we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Only the substitutionary death of Christ can provide that which God's justice demands. Your sin demands judgment. In a story. I've said it before, you, you can make a great pizza, but if you put dog food on one little corner, I'm not going to eat your pizza. Sorry. So I don't care how righteous you are, there's still sin. There's still areas which, if you've got to be honest, yeah, this area over here with my tongue, yeah, there with my pocketbook. You look at this, and this pizza doesn't hold up to God's standards. It's not going to work. Except there's a way. And that is, Christ came and died on a cross. He said, I'm take your sin. And the great verse that many of us know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's not something you do. It's so simple, yet extremely profound. It was costly. It cost God's son's life. And so by taking communion, it's a reminder that we have participated in Christ's death. This communion, the bread and wine, are not for those of you who don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, this isn't for you yet. You, 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 until you bend your knee before the Lord, this is a remembrance of what Christ has done. It's like attending a 25th alumni gathering at a college you never attended. You, you don't do it, right? And the communion is, a, is an opportunity to remember. But why? Why should we be told to remember Christ's death and burial and his resurrection? Yeah, I know about his sacrifice. Why do I need to be constantly reminded? Well, I'll tell you, there's things that I can't find. I forget where I placed, and that's increasingly growing. But last night when that siren went off at two something in the morning and we gathered the family down into the basement, uh, I remembered to get my computer. <laughs> My life's on that computer. Oh, this is my computer. I'm going to be toast, right? Uh, there was things you grab. I remembered exactly where my computer was. So why? I would argue failure to remember what the Christ has done fades into the lack of appreciation. Then it leads to self-gratification and ultimate separation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the observation that when lust takes control, listen to what he writes, at this moment God loses all reality Satan does not fill us with the hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Wow. That's what sin does. It, it puts the blinders, and we, we forget the cataracts come over, and, and we lose sight of, no, this is what Christ has done for us. It's a tangible way communion is to remember. It's an opportunity to, again, see Jesus as the one that we need to focus on 
It's an opportunity to participate. And finally, this remembrance does not merely look to the past, but it draws our heart to the future. John 17, close of the farewell discourse, Jesus states, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And by the way, that portion of the upper room discourse is Jesus praying for you and for me because it was a prayer for future disciples. I want them to see my glory. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens because in Revelation 5, they sang a new song. Were there you to take the scroll, Christ, and to open the seals? For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you shall reign. Verse 16 says, you will not eat of this until the kingdom. And verse 18, you will not drink of this until the kingdom. Communion looks not only to the past, but it looks to the future. And so, if you'll pull out our handy-dandy little <laughs> cup and bread. You know, as we come to the communion, as we've been arguing, it's a time of remembrance, what Jesus said it's, it's a time to remember that deliverance from sin in the present and a deliverance in the future from death can only come from the body and the blood. It's a time to remember that a relationship with the Lord in the presence, present and a promise of intimacy in the future can only come from the body and the blood. Peace in the present, hope in the future can only come from the body and the blood. Whose body? Whose blood? Jesus Christ. The God-man. Our Savior. Let's spend some time in prayer as we come. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this would be a time to bend your knee. Recognizing, yeah. I, I just thought these were elements that you go through just to, I don't know, hocus pocus, a little bit of spirituality comes along with it. Mm -mm. This is a time to remember, to reflect. What a great opportunity to this be the first remembrance. Truly knowing what it means that he died. For those of us who know Christ, there's a command in 1 Corinthians which we briefly touched on. We need to partake of this with clean hearts. So let's spend some time with the Lord. been cleansed by the blood of our Savior. As we read these final hours before Christ's crucifixion and to, to recognize his love for us, his grace and his mercy, 
He did not waver because he came to give his life a ransom for many. And so, Father, we marvel and we thank you. Thank you for your son's death on the cross, his substitution, his willingness to be the one who takes our penalty so that we could find justification. The re way we can find how to be right is through yielding our lives to you in a sense of recognizing, number one, that your son did die on the cross. And he did that because we are sinners that needed to be saved. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll take the bread. As Luke records, it says he, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. <laughs> and he gave it to them and said, this is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way he took the third cup. They had just tasted of the body, the lamb that was slain. And he said, after giving thanks, this cup is for you. He says, and after this, he says, the cup that was poured out for you because it's the new covenant in my blood. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace your mercy. Lord, that's not the end of the story. As so clear in verses 16 and 18, we're reminded there's a day coming when we will participate in a meal with you again. <laughs> in the meantime, we, the church, observe what you have done for us and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.